Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to our event, Emergency Savings, Are We Relearning Lessons or Have We Reached Its Limit? I'm Tim Shaw, Senior Policy Manager at the Aspen Institute Financial Security Program. This event is one in a series we are hosting to highlight the research, knowledge, and policies that can help businesses and policymakers triage the immediate effects of the current pandemic, design solutions allowing households to recover, and address structural challenges to stabilize financial security at the household level. Our research is made possible with support from BlackRock, the MasterCard Impact Fund, MetLife Foundation, the Prudential Foundation, and the WK Kellogg Foundation. Our event today focuses on the role emergency savings has played during COVID-19. First, I want to admit that amidst the news and events going on across the country, it has been personally difficult to focus on issues like this one. The killings of George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, and Breonna Taylor have awoken a movement across the country, calling on leaders and everyday people to end the systemic racism in our criminal justice system and culture that led to these tragic deaths and affirm that Black Lives Matter. On their face, issues like emergency savings can seem small next to the need to reform systems that threaten the physical safety of Black lives. But in the past couple of weeks, we at the Financial Security Program have heard over and over from Black leaders and scholars that these systems are intertwined. That, as Andre Carey at the Brookings Institution put it, it is impossible to separate social justice from economic justice. We don't need to look any further than the disparity in emergency savings and their underlying causes to see that this is true. According to a recent poll by the Bipartisan Policy Center, 44% of black households reported not having any rainy, rainy day savings prior to the pandemic, compared to 34% for white households, leading them to be less prepared financially, even as black people faced higher economic and health consequences of the pandemic itself. Some of this disparity is linked to the lack of access to financial products. According to the FDIC, 47% of black households are unbanked or underbanked, compared to 20% of white households. We cannot simply state those facts in a vacuum, however, as they are driven by a long history of explicit and structural racism. This history of discrimination and inequitable access to financial products ranges from redlining and denial of home ownership to black families, to significantly higher denials of credit to black businesses, to fewer bank branches in black neighborhoods and higher fees for black customers. It is fair to say that if there is mistrust between black communities and US financial institutions, it is with good reason. Despite these disparities, the growing movement to focus on these issues and actually take action gives me hope. Building a better system of financial services as a whole and emergency savings in particular will not just improve the system for black households and other people of color, it will build a better system for everyone. According to the Fed, 40% of people across the country cannot cover an emergency bill of $400 without borrowing or selling something. Building better financial products, workplace benefits, and policies to support emergency savings will help all households prepare for the unexpected in the wake of COVID-19. It is for that reason that I am thrilled that we have assembled this panel to discuss the ongoing importance of emergency savings what we've learned about savings during COVID-19, and most importantly, what actions we can take to better equip households into the future. Our panelists have between them decades of experience in the financial sector, the behavioral economics of savings, and policy. 
and have been on the front lines of helping leaders and households respond to the growing financial pressures of COVID-19. In addition to their discussion, I want to let everyone know that we'll be having a Q&A at the end of the panel. So as questions come up during the conversation, please don't hesitate to send them to me to pass on to our experts. At this time, I want to invite our panel to turn on their cameras and microphones. Our moderator today, I'm happy to introduce Deborah Winchell, Managing Director at BlackRock, who also serves as the Global Head of Social Impact for the firm. Once all, everyone has turned on the microphones and videos, Deborah, the floor is yours. Tim, thank you. Can you hear me? All good? Um, so first of all, thank you for having me and thank you for such a um, thoughtful uh, introduction and sort of setting the stage for the conversation that we are about to have. And I'm going to launch right into an introduction of my uh, colleagues and my speakers, uh, panelists, because we really have such a uh, impressive and uh, sort of broad array of perspectives uh, that we're bringing to this conversation. So let me let me jump right in. Um, first of all, I'd like to introduce David Derrick, uh, who's the Chief Impact Officer at Safer Life, a nonprofit that offers free online platform to help people build financial security, and they use incentives such as cash prizes. Uh, they also uh, have a platform to distribute innovations to partnerships that they have with employers, financial institutions, and nonprofits. So we'll hear a little bit more about Saver Life in a minute. Um, second, uh, Wendy De La Rosa, uh, welcome, co-founder of Common Sense Labs, a partner of ours in our emergency savings initiative. Uh, Common Sense Labs is part of the Advanced Hindsight uh, Center within Duke University. Uh, they are a research lab focused on behavioral insights that influence people's decisions to spend, save, borrow, and earn with very practical and implementable um, suggestions uh, that they pilot and test. And finally, David Newville, a friend uh, from um, Prosperity Now, Vice President of Policy Research, uh, a nonprofit focused on a combination of practical solutions, in-depth research, and policy solutions aimed at building wealth for those who need it most, especially those with limited incomes and often communities of color. So as you can see from our panelists, we uh, have really have a range of perspectives and experience, and I'd like to uh, dive right into this. And, and um, David Newville, I'd like to start with you because I think Prosperity Now uh, really brings a unique lens to this conversation. You've been a leader on emergency savings research and policy for years, well before certainly BlackRock got involved. Um, you just launched a series called New Crisis, Same Story. Uh, can you um, provide uh, for us a background on really the state of household emergency savings before the pandemic, what you're seeing now, and, and also the underlying racial disparities that your work um, so clearly illuminates? I'll let you kick it off. Thank you. Thanks, Deborah. Uh, thanks to Aspen for having me here today. Um, yeah, I think uh, you're definitely hitting the needle uh, on the head, Deborah, you know, and I think as Tim mentioned in his intro as well, you know, these disparities, the economic disparities and the disparities that we see from systemic racism exist, you know, throughout the different major systems in our society and our culture. And, you know, when it comes to emergency savings, these disparities, uh, you know, uh, you know, are, are certainly there as well, you know, the you know, with COVID-19 and the, the outbreaks that have happened around the health disparities in black communities across the country, as in the report that you mentioned, 
um, you know, is not surprising, unfortunately, because we know that the disparities on economic and health levels already existed in those communities in a lot of ways that left them more vulnerable to the to the outbreak and the issues that have kind of have come down since then and flowed from that. And when it comes to emergency savings, you know, um, you know, prosperity now, of course, as you mentioned, has been focused on wealth, uh, wealth security and wealth inequality for a long time. And we all know that white households have 10 times, you know, median the 10 times the wealth that uh, that black households have. And part of the reason, you know, with wealth disparities that exist in the longer term at that level, you know, emergency savings, you know, is just a symptom of those larger problems when people can't even save for emergencies. They're certainly not going to be able to have the wealth backing to, to provide the benefits that we get from longer term wealth building as well. And, you know, we've heard the, the BPC stats about um, uh, issues around savings, prosperity now as part of our scorecard. You know, has looked at liquid, liquid asset poverty, which is kind of you know the the amount of savings that a family would need to survive just at the poverty level for three months. And you know, we found that you know overall, 37 percent of households, 45 million uh, nationwide, you know, live in liquid asset poverty or not able to meet that threshold. Um, and when you break that down further by race, you see the disparities, you know, for, for black and Latinx households, it's 58% for white households it's 28%. Um, so you see some huge disparities there. And I think, you know, when it comes to the economic side, we can dive more into this, um, you know, in our discussion in the Q and A, we see these disparities flow from a lot of different, uh, different areas and that, that include, you know, consumer protection issues, uh, access to basic accounts, access to accounts to the workplace and, and tax benefits, um, uh, as well as the way our tax code is designed and the incentives that we have to, to build emergency savings and long-term savings in general. When you start to look more closely at these systems, you see that there you know, are not only huge um, disparities along economic means, obviously there's huge disparities in terms of uh, the, racial, the racial aspects as well. I'm, I'm just curious, and I hear my iPad is uh, seems to be crooked, so I'm just going to try and flip it. But if you could just stay on that for a minute and talk a little bit about um, what you're seeing today and sort of in the midst and as, you know, potentially as we come out of the pandemic. Absolutely. Yeah. What we're seeing today is, you know, uh, unfortunately, what we would expect it. I mean, on the local level, in reference you know, to the work report that you mentioned, um, uh, you know, in the communities where we do in-depth work, the communities of color where we do in-depth work across the country, you know, many of those are the ones, as I mentioned, who have been hit especially hard by the COVID-19 crisis. Those communities are struggling uh, in many ways at the household level. You know, I think a lot of folks, you know, the federal response to the COVID-19 crisis is, you know, rightly, you know, the stimulus uh, rebates, the stimulus payments that went out, um, which, you know, Americans who have filed their taxes, who have access, you know, who um, have access to a bank account or electronically received refunds in the past with the IRS, you know, they received their payments a long time ago. In, in these communities where folks are less likely to have account access, you know, they either haven't filed or have more difficulty filing their taxes. So many of these folks are still waiting to receive their payments and haven't received the, you know, the $1,200 for individual, the $500 for children, child and the household payments and have struggled as a result of that even more so. And it, it definitely, the disparities fall along racial lines pretty severely. And we hear that from these communities. Um, on the organizational level, you know, when it comes to the Paycheck Protection Program, the PPP, you know, many of the nonprofits and small businesses of color in these communities that we work closely with, you know, they report many of the same difficulties other smaller businesses report in accessing the, those funds from the government in order to support them. 
But then on top of it, you know, many of them, you know, obviously the rate of disparities, again, when you look at race, you know, uh, black business owners, black led nonprofits, um, Latinx as well have struggled uh, much more so in accessing these funds, you know, for sometimes for reasons that aren't explicit, you know, it's because of the, the lack of access to traditional financial institutions, or preferred access being smaller businesses or being associated with smaller, smaller groups as well. Prosperity now, among many others, has kind of pushed on both these fronts, number one, to make sure that like CDFIs and other sources of PPP funds have been set aside specifically for Black-owned um, businesses to make sure that they have those funds so they can help their employees and support their employees and don't have to lay them off, can make sure they're financially stabilized. Um, and then obviously on the consumer side, we pushed a lot with the Treasury Department, which we you know applaud for adapting their, their prepaid debit card program, the US debit card program to help you know expedite some of these um, these payments get out electronically versus waiting for paper checks, which they can only, you know, Treasury Department can only print five million a week, which right. many people waiting till potentially up to August to receive these checks if they're lucky and then they have to cash them and deal with that. So, um, and overall, you know, we're seeing data, uh, many people have seen this, folks are saving at much higher rates now. You know, the new data that we've seen that the savings rate has jumped greatly since the crisis has begun. I haven't seen uh, racial data explicitly on that, but I, I'm pretty sure it's a safe bet. And, you know, we hear anecdotally on the ground that, you know, a lot of the folks in these communities of color that we serve are not able to do that, you know, either because they've lost their jobs, they've had their hours reduced, and even if they haven't, they already started at a deficit and don't have the emergency savings, you know, that we're here to talk about today in the first place because the systems yeah. weren't there to support them. Well, that's a perfect transition. Thanks for raising that because, you know, for those of us who are spending time in the emergency savings space, we always talk about the need for emergency savings if your car breaks down, you have a sudden unexpected event. And here we are facing a system-wide, a systemic uh, uh, emergency. And whether it's the individual, the institution, everybody who is there uh, to provide a safety net or to be uh, sort of offering um, different avenues for uh, support are all facing this crisis at once. And so I think that's one of the most unique elements of what we're talking about. But if we shift to the individual, I know David Derrick, you guys um, uh, really have a front seat at Saver Life um, to what's been going on. And as David or other David mentioned, we actually are seeing an increase in the savings rate. And so we know that there are a lot of different factors at interplay, sort of interplaying there to create that. So we'd love to hear what you're seeing at Saver Life. And then Wendy, I know you, I'm sure have some thoughts about sort of behaviorally what might be underlying this trend. So David, why don't I start with you? And then Wendy, let's uh, move over to you. Sure. Thanks, Deborah, and thanks, Aspen. Um, yeah, at Saber Life, you know, just uh, kind of giving a quick overview, overview on what we do. We offer a secure, easy-to-use platform um, that it provides uh, typically monetary incentives, financial resources, and a peer community for people to uh, to help them change their savings habits and to get on a path to long-term financial security. Uh, we've got right now about 350,000 people on our platform, and I think from an individual level, the big piece is uh, is looking at how transactions um, and how people are spending and saving during this during this crisis. What I'd like to do is uh, is actually just kind of take us through a quick timeline. We've been doing research and looking through uh, sort of comparing March, April, and May of 2020 uh, to 2019. Um, March kind of year to year comparison was actually pretty typical. Uh, not much movement. But in April, we saw really the big change because I think, you know, we saw people starting to shelter in place and we also saw stimulus checks and other pieces coming into play. So what we did see was that 
just to give it a quick demographic background, we've got about 70% of people on our platform are women, um, close to about 60% of the platform are people of color. Uh, income ranges between uh, between twenty five and thirty five thousand dollars on average. So just to give you kind of a picture of uh, of who's who's working with us and who's saving on our platform, we did see significant increases in April in terms of deposits, but we think that was largely due to uh, to stimulus payments. And at the same time, we saw a corresponding decrease in spending, um, with two notable exceptions, which was in groceries and healthcare. Um, so two things we saw start happening was obviously people are at home. Um, you saw the effect, the kind of the macro effects of schools being closed, people being people needing to be home, and saw individuals who are both on uh, public assistance needing to spend out of pocket in addition to uh, what would have been available to their public benefits already. In May, we then saw a decrease in deposits. Um, and just to give the April side, I think David, you mentioned how the savings rate jumped. Uh, we saw the savings rate jump in our in our platform as well. So people people were kind of went into a hunkering down kind of mode. But in May, we saw decreases in our deposits. And so again, that's you know sort of the spike with uh, with stimulus payments. But then once those were removed and kind of a one-time piece, it's uh, you know kind of trending it's trending downwards. Um, one of the things we're seeing in Maine, we did a survey of people to figure out how many have been uh, affected by had been affected either furloughed, underemployed, or laid off. So, in our in our uh, in our user base, uh, about 82% of people who responded, we had about 4,200 people respond to this poll. 82% of people had either been furloughed or hours reduced. And so, we are clearly going to see, uh, and we're seeing it already in early June. Um, that the trend is going to be a lower month of a uh, of deposit the ability to one have income, and then you kind of have to trickle down. Obviously, less income means less less deposits for uh, for savings activity. We're also seeing uh, continued spending, though, of the same levels around grocery and healthcare expenditures during these past two months. So, uh, while incomes might be decreasing, while savings are are starting to hover we'll see if they'll go up or go down or stay the same we think they will probably trend downwards because of the uh because of kind of the artificial increase in in the stimulus side um and we're starting to see again a kind of an uptick in transportation costs so again april we saw people were largely staying at home across the country but as may starts to may and june start to reopen people are having to go back to uh go back to work and I think you made an interesting point, David, just about the um, kind of the racial makeup of the country. And one thing we see from the SaverLight platform is that largely a lot of people, while being furloughed, uh, these are also lots of individuals who are at the front lines. So people who are, you know, doing transportation for, you know, mass transit, um, healthcare workers, home care workers. And so there is, there's definitely, um, an interplay between trying to decipher between those who are still working and so being able to being able to save but then the whole other group of, of people on our platform who may not have been working or working part-time already the vast majority of the people who are on our platform are working several different jobs and so we're going to see you know i think one of the things that we're we're concerned about is seeing the decrease in our inability to save um so i'll pause there for a moment to just kind of uh, to say that's where that's where we're seeing in our data thus far. David, I just um, oh, Wendy, please go right ahead. I was just going to chime in and say, you know, I, I think it's a it's a wrong question to ask whether or not these levels of savings can be sustainable, because even outside of the stimulus check, for people who have been laid off 
and the millions of people who make minimum wage, their financial situation right now is actually improved because yes. of the additional funds that they get through unemployment benefits. And I think a lot of us aren't talking about that, right? In our work, we often focus on the irrationality of consumers and their rational behavior. But this is completely rational behavior, right? You have essentially increased income, either because you've been laid off, which is just another mind-blowing statistic, or because of this stimulus check that you've received, and you have depressed and forced decreased spending. So prior to COVID, one of the things that we found in our research is the number one expense that people want to cut back on is discretionary spending, but within that is eating out expenditure eating out expenditures and so when you when you take that and you essentially force people not to be able to eat out right in a, in a very sort of forceful way of course you're going to get increased savings now for me i think that for everybody on this call the number one thing that we should be asking is what are financial institutions doing to ensure that we get more people into the banking system? Because if you're not in the banking system, it's unclear where that extra funds are going, right? Maybe they just stay in your debit card or whatever it is, or you're still getting checks, but that still means that you're outside of the banking system in a very critical way. So David pointed out the fact that if you don't have a bank account, you couldn't receive your $1,200 in a timely manner. But that's just one small piece of it. We've been working with Code for America as an example to actually implement the pandemic act that Congress passed, which allows parents to get extra money to buy food for their family if their children are eligible for free or reduced school lunches. And the problem with that program is that because everybody in the United States does not have a bank account tied to their name, we are then beholden to these antiquated notions of printing debit cards, which in the state of California, you know, the, the partner that we had could only print 10,000 of these cards a day. And so now families have been waiting for months in order to get this additional benefit. I think as employers, and I see a lot of employers on the attendees list, like there is a, there is a responsibility to eliminate this type of behavior and say, you know what, if, if you're an employee of ours, you need to have a bank account because that's the way in which I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you income. I acknowledge that this is a tough, a, a tough spot, right? Because if you look at the Edelman Trust Barometer, the industry with the lowest rate of trust out of all other industries is financial services. And for people of color, it's completely rational to not trust financial institutions. I, I almost think it's irrational that um, people of color are still banking uh, with major financial institutions, because if you look, at least even in the last five years, every single major bank has essentially had a discrimination lawsuit against them. But still, we need to push on this front, because if you're not part of the financial system, you cannot get the funds in a timely manner to be able to live, to be able to survive. You know, we're talking about savings as a way to, you know, help help fix a broken car. A lot of the work that we've been doing over the past couple of months is literally talk about money to help people buy food, right? Well, I think in a lot of ways we're talking about survival. So well, we, I know we're, we have other topics to cover, but this issue of making sure that everybody has a bank account tied to their name, I think is fundamentally critical. So, uh, David, go. 
please. Yeah, I was going to add to that. I think the other side of the work we've been doing, and I think uh, it does speak to the banking issue, is we've, we quickly uh, developed a cash disbursement program. And so I think, Wendy, you hit, you hit it right on the head in the sense that those people who had some who had an existing account were able to receive um, payments literally within, um, you know, you were approved and you could receive payment within an hour. Um, so talking about sort of how fast can money go out. At the same time, we also needed to look to figure out what if I don't have a bank account? And to your point, it was the same scenario. It's I would need to have a prepaid debit card. Uh, it has to get mailed to you. You have to, you have to actually turn on the card um, and do those pieces. The good thing we saw is that in the cash disbursements we did, we actually didn't have anyone request the prepaid, prepaid card, but it is surprising to see the um, alternative methods being used. So people did receive money using PayPal and Venmo because we just simply worked with a company that allowed any type of disbursement platform that you wanted to get to, you can take it. But I think it does highlight your point that if you're not, if you're not electronically connected, because I, I don't know that, uh, I think we at Saber Life have started off thinking banked products were the most important thing. And I think we've evolved our thinking to being that any electronic um, accounts that, that we can send money to is, is actually the solution. Because to your point, some people just, I mean, when you bring in things like second, second chance accounts or check systems, you simply won't be, there are just a number of folks who cannot get an account today. And, and David, just to add a, a piece of data point, we work with a lot of neobanks over the years. And the drop-off rate between me signing up for a neobank, going through the process, and then activating that debit card that ultimately gets shipped to me is more than 50% on average. Right? That that is a huge barrier if we just think of if if, if we don't think about behavior in this minute way. We just said, well, we can just mail everybody a debit card and it'll be completely fine. But again, then you're losing 50% of the people. That's an astronomical number that we, we oftentimes don't talk about. I want to come back to the behavioral point. And David, in a minute, I want to come to the policy. But I want to stay on something that you've both raised. And, and Wendy, you identified a few minutes ago, which is um, the role of other institutions in this ecosystem to create opportunity. And um, one of the reasons we started the Emergency Savings Initiative in, in partnership with you is is, is to figure out how to motivate scale actors across this ecosystem to help embed short-term savings opportunities for uh, for employees or for customers. Can you um, talk about um, uh, ways that you've seen either employers or opportunities you see for, say, employers or other scale actors to create that electronic opportunity to um, deposit money for, for their customers or for their employees? So I think I, I can talk about three separate examples. So the first is if you're a traditional financial institution, I think there needs to be a rethinking of automatic savings. And so oftentimes we think about automatic savings as every 25th of the month, you know, $50 is going to go from my checking account into my savings account. But the reality is that only 11% of Americans get paid on a monthly basis. The rest of us either get paid on a weekly or a bi-weekly basis. And so that type of savings vehicle is fundamentally incompatible which the, in the way in which I earn income. 
And because of that, many people are afraid of signing up in, into these types of automatic savings programs because it leads to overdrafts. And so we've worked with partners like Honeyfy and Chime to create a new savings feature where you just set a savings rate percentage. So if you get paid a lot, you save 5% of that. If you don't get paid a lot, you save 5% of a smaller amount. If you don't get paid, you don't save anything at all. And for both of those partners, it's become the most popular savings feature. Right, so people are actively seeking for these types of savings products, and I think you know if you're a financial institution, that's that, that's sort of step one. I think step two, as an employer, right, we kind of sort of hinted at this, which was you if you are still printing paper checks, if we need to have a, a fundamental conversation about how either you're enabling or disenabling financial security and financial well-being, right? So so that's one. The second, and then I think the last one is how we think about the onboarding process. So most people, they set and forget their retirement savings allocation one time. And we do that when we start a new job. And, you know, I think there are pros and cons to that, right? So we have to decide like, what are the meaningful defaults? But at that time period, people's attention is not necessarily on setting up their retirement account in the most effective way. They're trying to get their email set up. They're trying to get their internet access connected. They're trying to figure out how to be successful in a new job. And so what I always encourage employers is to think about creating a financial wellness day where your employees get a day off in order to set their bank accounts in order to review their retirement allocations, to finally get life insurance and they, if they don't have it already, and then report back, just like we would with any other day, right? Uh, and I, I think we have to bring up finances and financial health in the same way that we have, you know, sick days and talk about, you know, healthcare in the same way. It's so- sure Oh, go yeah. ahead. I was just going to say, it's so interesting because we are seeing that shift among employers to really expand the definition of employee health, that it used to just be your physical health. And I think now everyone is starting to appreciate that physical health is also really connected to financial health and that that stress that so many people feel from this increasing burden of expenses and mismatches income um, it has a direct connection to productivity and overall sort of the, the health of its entire work population. One of the things that you stress, I think, in, in those um, examples is this idea of automatic, um, set and forget, you know, having this ability to say, this is what I'd like to do and, and it's reasonable given my income or my pay. Uh, and I know you've done a lot of work around, it, regardless of income level, people want to save. Um, David, I'm curious in Saver Life, um, what experience you've had and the results you've seen by uh, creating both sort of an easy way to savings, savings objectives, and also I know you you focus on incentives. Uh, yeah, yeah. For us, it's uh, it's it's actually very interesting. We we have we fundamentally believe that people need to, you know, have, should be able to make the right choices, but we also recognize the fact that lots of times people just or think about think about the future and how how good things will be um, versus where they are currently. So we've done it. We've been doing a few different um, types of experiments. Some in which we allow people to opt into uh, into our different savings challenges, and others where we simply default them into them. And I would say, uh, in large, we're moving more and more towards defaulting people into 
uh, into these types of savings challenges. Um, mostly because it's sort of a, it's, it's uh, the way in which our incentives generally work is uh, that you are rewarded for taking action and the action being savings. And so when you choose, should I be in this kind of a incentive or in, in this other type of a challenge, um, sometimes you're just making a choice to decide to do something yes or yes or no, but there's other things also, also happening in your life. Um, so for us, I think as we move into automating and trying to default people into different pieces, we're seeing increased savings activities. And I think one big one big thing we always forget is uh, is even when you are automating savings to kind of a, to a paycheck or to to some sort of a income component, in general, you know, on our platform, we're seeing people are really getting paid in general about two times a month. Um, and so when we think through that, we're trying to really figure out. Uh, how do you get somebody to think beyond just the two different times? Um, you know, because if it's just payday, that's one component. But really, savings can come in a multitude of different ways. You know, it's in terms of thinking about how you're budgeting, thinking about where you're spending your money. I think to uh, Wendy's point, can I can I reduce my my uh, my discretionary spend? Um, and so we're trying to just think about ways in which we can automate those other types of uh, processes as well. Yeah, it's interesting with the two, you both are practitioners in, uh, in, in really seeing what works and the idea of default, opt out, you know, we know are really, we know from 401k behavior are so fundamental um, as, a, as a driver to savings. Um, David Newville, I know that uh, the, a lot of the impediments or some of the barriers to this are regulatory or legislative. And I'm very curious to hear your point of view about where you think some near-term opportunities may exist to start to move this um, opportunity along. And also from a longer-term perspective where you see uh, some movement or some, um, some new initiatives uh, from that point of view that might help. Absolutely. Yeah, there is, there's definitely been a bipartisan movement to kind of improve the way we do emergency savings and kind of leverage the power of automatic enrollment and payroll deduction. I, I do have to emphasize that I agree with, with Wendy and David, though. I think account access is huge, um, uh, is, is a key part of it. I think, you know, obviously higher wages is a huge component as well, as long as other incentives, especially, you know, when we think about the billions, hundreds of billions of dollars we spend in tax incentives for kind of wealth building purposes every year to can also be redeployed in that manner. But there's also a role, you know, I mean, it's not just waiting around for government to kind of take action at the federal or state level either. I think there's a lot that employers and others can do on these means. I think, you know, one area, it's basically fallen kind of into two different areas right now. When you're thinking about the workplace, kind of leveraging payroll deduction, which is very powerful, is um, thinking about, you know, uh, how do you use the retirement system to save? You know, it's the main mechanism for saving for most Americans um, is to be able to use payroll deduction through retirement accounts to save. And there's a couple different models out there. Folks kind of colloquially uh, hear them as like the sidecar model is, you know, how do you do emergency savings within a retirement account and type of a separate account? Um, and there's been a lot of interesting work being done at that area by um, various financial institutions and, and other groups that kind of work in this space to kind of explore that model and ease, since they weren't originally intended to be used for emergency savings, trying to ease some of these regulatory burdens, as you mentioned, and trying to figure out ways to, you know, help folks who, um, both those who may be already saving for retirement but don't have access or aren't, you know, are withdrawing from their accounts as we're seeing right now, 
uh, with COVID-19, you know, Congress passed a provision to temporarily waive uh, the fees for withdrawing, a, you know, up to $100,000 from your 401k, you know, for folks who need to pull that money out for emergencies and for folks who actually are fortunate to have that much money or anywhere near that in their accounts in the first place. But, you know, being able to create an emergency savings pocket that they can save as seamlessly for retirement could be could be very positive. There's also a hypothesis that, you know, a lot of folks who may have access to it may say, I'm not going to save for retirement. I can't even save for emergencies. You know, we heard the data before, um, you know, this might be an incentive to get them involved to say, okay, I'll start with the emergency component and then I can also save for the long term. And there's several pieces of legislation that would do that, uh, encourage that. There's also legislation um, that focuses on the tax time side as well, which we haven't touched on, which is like thinking about folks who are getting these lump sum refunds at tax time. You know, the research on that has been mixed about the success and kind of encouraging folks at least to formally save in that manner. But there's um, there's legislation right now that's been bipartisan to kind of encourage that, provide a match, especially to lower income participants to encourage them to, to do that as well, to, um, to access uh, matching funds in addition. But they, again, you have to have an account in the first place you know, roughly, you know, only about half of workers actually have access to a retirement account in the first place in the workplace, many small businesses and others. And, and these workers who don't have access to that are predominantly workers of color or, or more likely to be workers of color who don't have that access. There's still steps that employers can take, and there is actually legislation too that would help employers set out external savings accounts, even if they don't offer a retirement plan and so forth. But I do think, you know, um, there needs to be a, a bigger picture movement toward kind of creating some type of universal account structure. You know, there's many ways we can go about doing this. There's many examples. UK, obviously, Canada are, are much farther ahead than we are. You know, um, the details would have to be worked out, but the biggest barrier is political will. And I think, you know, I agree with, you know, with Wendy was saying, you know, account access and just basic electronic access for your, either your payments, uh, you know, to be able to save, you know, you can create savings pockets, attached savings accounts. We, we have all the tech and all the, the know-how there to be able to do this. What we don't have is the political will to do that. And again, I would say it's not just about, I think advocacy is important and leveraging the COVID moment, which is really highlighting this to, to kind of make sure that workers aren't left in this vulnerable position again is really important. But I think it involves a much bigger group of folks, employers, you know, folks in the FinTech sector all have to get involved in this advocacy to make sure that we leverage this moment to make sure we don't find ourselves in this position again for those vulnerable workers. Yeah. And David, you, you sort of mentioned tax time savings, right? And And I think this all goes back to the implementation and a fundamental difference that I think, you know, I have and we at Common Sense Lab have, which I don't think that savings needs to be a habit. I don't think that savings needs to be an action. And so part of the reason why tax time savings has, the results have been mixed is because in order to save part of your tax refund, you then have to take an additional step. You need to file form 8888 nothing about that form title says savings, right? You then like, after you've just gone through the pain of filing your taxes, why would I wanna elongate that painful process any longer? You know, one of the most successful tax savings features, tax savings initiatives has been, you know, through a project I led with Common Sense where we took users, like digit users, so people who were already part of a savings app, and we texted them in January before they even filed their taxes. And we said, hey, you might get your tax refund. If you do, what percentage of it would you like to save? And then when we detected the IRS payment, we then took that percentage and moved it from their checking account to their digit savings account. It more than doubled savings rates, right? From about 15% to a little bit under 30%, right? That's really meaningful, but that's because all, and 
people just had to answer a text. And by the way, they answered it for their future selves because in the future, we're perfect. Right? In the future, we're gonna lose weight. We're gonna save more. In the future, we think about our perfect versions of ourselves. And so I think all of these biases we have to use to our advantage and stop thinking that savings needs to be a habit, that savings needs to be an action, an active action that people need to take because you know, that model has failed and has failed us for years and it's failing us now. It's interesting um, when you talk about employers, I think, uh, and Wendy, uh, when you talk about the savings habit versus just making it uh, automatic, uh, this really is a moment in time. Uh, legislative opportunities are exciting and advocacy important, but there's also, I think, an opportunity for employers, for payroll providers, for record keepers to step in and create uh, these savings pockets. Um, and you know, the the benefits are so uh, have such multiple uh, effects because you know, one obviously it gives a simple way for people to put aside money when they can. And secondly, there's evidence that short-term savings leads to uh, greater long-term savings, like getting your toe in the water. So, you know, it feels like there is this moment in time where uh, there are opportunities for a number of different players. And FinTechs are a perfect complement to this because nimble, tech stack, uh, innovative, you know, to plug in and help create these solutions for employers who may not have the whole infrastructure available. So I know from uh, the Emergency Savings Initiative, we're really optimistic that this is a time where we're seeing a lot of partnerships uh, and different uh, uh, sort of actors in the ecosystem coming together to create these opportunities. Um, before we go to questions, I'm just curious, um, uh, you know, COVID has been uh, so devastating and damaging to so many people and so many institutions. Um, that said, there's been this level of innovation and sort of reconfiguring of the way that we do things. Um, and I'm just wondering, is there anything that you've seen that is that might come out of COVID that you think actually um, creates uh, a, a pathway or an opportunity um, or learnings that we can take and, and hopefully sort of uh, propel some of the progress around the things that we're talking about? anyone jump in yeah i um i think to come back to this issue of electronic accounts again i do think the stimulus rebates have kind of really shown a light on a system that has been pretty ineffective in the past and you know and, and it, looking at an international context it's pretty embarrassing that it takes us this long to get payments to many you know tens of millions of americans who so have to wait months to get their their stimulus rebates and i think like I said, I mean, I applaud the Treasury Department for taking the step of kind of repurposing the U.S. debit card program to be able to deliver this. But that is just kind of the bare minimum, as Wendy was saying, this, you know, even just like a debit card that you mail to folks. And, you know, there's been a lot of issues with that, too. You know, it, it looks like junk mail when it comes in the mail. Some people have accidentally thrown it away. I think, you know, leveraging this moment and kind of highlighting that because, you know, you know, let's hope that we don't have another pandemic like this, of course, but there will be other economic crises. We tried to get money out quickly to people after the 2008 um, recession as well through the making it, making work pay tax credit that, you know, historically, as we look back, that had a delayed reaction too. And being able to get payments to the most vulnerable workers quickly in, you know, most traditional recessions can be the difference between, you know, not only their individual household survival, but economic, overall economic health. So I think building a system where we can get people the payments electronically, like, you know, Wendy and David have highlighted, 
making sure we have real-time payments that move quickly. That's another thing that the Fed's been working on for a while. Uh, you know, the private sector has done work on that too, but I think fast payments, secure, low cost, you know, making sure that we, you know, have something more sophisticated than debit, co you know, debit cards, things, you know, we have all this fabulous tech that, you know, the presenters here, you know, have talked about that we all know about mobile apps and different types of tools to help us manage our money. You know, we can leverage this to build kind of a, a fully inclusive universal system, I think. And again, I think it's just a matter of the political will to do that and you know to make sure that we can leverage this and you know the next time we find ourselves in a crisis or you know with regional crises and climate change all the other factors involved there there are going to be other emergencies where you're going to need to move money quickly and and be able to include everyone for multiple reasons so it would be a huge boon to to be able to kind of take the learnings that we have here and be able to provide you know and to build that kind of next level system so we don't end up in that place in the long run and, and just improve the financial lives of the folks that we serve and our economy overall uh, in the long term I'll, I'll sort of piggyback on on that but provide sort of a second layer right so even, even if we mail people debit cards that's assuming that we have the right address and that's mm -hmm. assuming that people don't move um but I think another layer to this is really thinking about how do we create a centralized system? So I'll go back to, again, the CARE Act that Congress recently passed, right? It, it left it up to the states to administer this extra amount of money parents buy food for their children. And some states like Utah, for example, essentially rejected the funds and said it would be the burden and the cost of administrating this program and getting money to poor families, low-income families, would be too much. So just think about that. If you are a family in Utah, you are out almost $400 because your state has decided that the administrative burden is too high. If we think about a state like California, for example, that many of us would say, you know, is one of the most progressive states, it still took California months to be able to administer these funds. And so I think there has to be a rethinking, not just on universal bank accounts or electronic accounts, however we want to call it, but there also needs to be a fundamental rethinking of the underlying pipelines between the federal government, the states, and then its citizens, right? That link is broken and your quality of life <laughs> depends so much on your zip code. And the willingness, right, the political will, as Davis was talking about, of your state to help you improve your financial well-being. We promised that um, we would let the uh, audience to ask some questions. So I hate to stop in this moment because uh, I think um, uh, these are some issues that haven't been raised as much as um, uh, I think is needed to be. Um, but I'm going to switch to, I have a question for David Derrick. David up top. Um, the question is, now my, uh, I have to like get my iPhone back that's going to let me in. Mm -hmm. uh, hold on one second. Uh, how can practitioners balancing, how can, how can practitioners balance leveraging the pandemic to increase the salience of savings while understanding that many clients are struggling to meet basic needs? Yeah. You know, that dichotomy. Yeah, no, I, I think first and foremost, the um, the biggest piece that we've seen is just simply that, you know, COVID-19 has made savings top of mind uh, universally. So we're seeing, so, so on the one hand, we have, I think, uh, what I'd call sort of like the behavioral shock, um, 
has been has been is here. Uh, at the same time, I think the way in which we look at it from a balancing standpoint is is the fact that um, liquid savings, short term savings, is critical to your just one your short term kind of life existence, and then thinking about your longer term financial health. And so our, our approach really is that we think that people are able to save, um, even if your first savings is $5. Um, so literally one of our first incentive pieces is actually just save $5 a week um, as a starting point. And so we don't try to actually, I think, it, I think to uh, Wendy's point before about percentage of savings, we look at it constantly in that we can't arbitrarily pick a number for somebody to, for somebody to save, you know, save $100, save $500. The goal really is for us to think about how do we get people to recognize that small steps build up to larger steps. And so that's really, I think, the uh, the fundamental kind of approach that we take is meet people, uh, sort of meet people where they are and that they can determine what is the amount that's, that's relevant for them. And over time that they'll actually uh, get there. Um, we've talked a lot about uh, the employer-employee relationship. Uh, Wendy, a question for you. For gig and other non-traditional workers, how can we build tools for automatic savings without that traditional relationship in place? That's a, that's a great question. And I think there are two, uh, people are trying to address this in, across two ways. So the first is that we work with companies like Everlance, for example. And so Everlance is a, is a fintech app that allows gig economy drivers to track their mileage. Now, on top of that, they're building really interesting financial services products that allow gig economy workers to pay their taxes on a quarterly basis so that they can avoid fines. Because if you're self-employed, you should be paying taxes on a quarterly basis, but then essentially save, again, a percentage of, of, of your income. Right, because you don't have those pay, pay, paycheck deductions that a traditional W-2 worker has, then we have to rely on these financial products to be able to be able to do that. And uh, for example, Everlance has built that out. Hmm. The second part is that, you know, this is maybe a topic for another discussion is to think about why does retirement savings need to be tied to your employer at all? And so we're living in a world where the average tenure for a millennial worker it's less than two years per employer. And we know that there's leakage that happens every time someone shifts, right? And so I think we can move to a model that lots of other countries have adopted, where regardless of your employment status, regardless of your employer, right, your retirement account moves with you as you move from self-employment to W-2, et cetera. But again, that takes, that takes political will, that takes leadership, that takes change. Um, at both at the federal and state level. And you know, until we get there, I think the onus goes back to employers and financial institutions. Well, that leads uh, right into this next question for David Newville, uh, which is, how do you make the case to policymakers that emergency savings policy is important in the midst of all the other priorities that are coming up uh, in the face of COVID? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, you know, it's one <clears throat> prosperity now has struggled with organizationally because I think, you know, right now, you know, in the immediate effects of the COVID-19 outbreak, it's really tough to kind of come in and push for emergency savings, you know, programs and initiatives because, you know, the biggest priority obviously is kind of, you know, 
ensuring financial stability for families right now, right? Making sure they have the liquidity, you know, making sure there's, you know, uh, protections in place around debt, you know, making sure that people can, don't have to pay their student loans if they lost their job, you know, um, rent issues, mortgage issues, trying to prevent foreclosures, evictions, those types of things, stabilizing the financial lives of folks. Wendy earlier brought up a point, um, a really good point about the the expanded UI benefits, which are set to expire next month. You know, that's a huge thing too, um, in addition to the stimulus rebates and the other pieces out there. So I think, you know, we want to make sure that, the, the, you know, ideally in the ideal world, families would have had the emergency savings they needed to kind of help them weather the, this crisis better now. Now that we're in it, I think the priority has to be on that stability. But looking further down the road, we don't want to wait too long to think about, you know, not just leveraging the moment to push for expanded um, policy to make sure that families can build emergency savings in the long run. Um, you know, we want to make sure that, you know, we start building that up is whenever the economy recovers to make sure that people have the mechanisms to be able to do that. And, and like I said before, I think there's smaller opportunities when it comes like the regulatory changes you mentioned, whether it's, you know, trying to make it easier for employers to be able to offer these in-plan emergency savings options and removing some of the regulatory barriers, you know, either working with regulators or, you know, through statutory changes through Congress, encouraging, you know, smaller pieces of match savings and tax time as well. And there's also bigger ones too, you know, like I said, think about the universal accounts option, which would cover multiple things beyond emergency savings in the short and long run. And then tax incentives is huge as well. You know, I meant came up earlier, but you know, we, you know, you can argue about savings being a habit or, you know, matching on savings. There's also the the, the idea, especially for low-income families, that, you know, you shouldn't, can, you shouldn't have benefits around helping people, you know, receive um, savings uh, contingent, contingent on the behavior of saving at all, right? There is some legislation, like Senator Coons has a piece of legislation, the Saving for the Future Act, which would just autom have an automatic minimum deposit that folks can have you know, in their accounts, whether they can afford to save or decide to save at all. So they have something in there that would build on it based on their salary. And, you know, obviously would encourage further contributions on their own as well. But, you know, you can think about legislation that would be much bigger than that to do that as well. And I think as we're thinking about this moment, we need to think about emergency savings, but we need to think more broadly too, in terms of, you know, the retirement connection. That's another area that's severe. The, like I said, the account access, Wendy brought up the benefit systems, you know, that's a huge thing. And I know has been a, you know, the focus of another session, uh, you know, uh, one of these conversations that ASP has held about improving the way we do benefits, whether it's just unemployment systems, which have kind of performed very poorly in certain states uh, right now, or SNAP benefits or TANF benefits and others, you know, we have, you know, in some states and for some programs too, you have asset limits, you know, which, right. you know, uh, can kick people off of benefit programs for just for the act of saving. You're trying to encourage economic mobility, but taking away benefits from people saving. There's federal legislation that has been introduced uh, in the Senate that would eliminate these asset limits, you know, and that would help kind of free up regulatory barriers for how people save too. It's interesting when you listen to your description, it can feel very daunting um, that, you know, one, how can we be talking about savings when people are just focused on having sufficient income right now or all the legislative issues um, surrounding uh, or preventing, uh, creating some barriers to creating these opportunities, or just the whole system um, of universal benefits. Uh, and I think it's important because we do have uh, listeners from very different perspectives online um, to break it down and recognize that while some of these are really large issues to overcome and are going to take sort of bipartisan or sort of larger uh, movements to address, 
there also are, as everybody on the call has mentioned, a number of things that everyone can do to try to make progress. And that um, it's been interesting to us in this moment where talking about savings can you wonder, could it feel tone deaf? There's such an increased appreciation for financial health of individuals, employee financial health. We've been struck by the number of companies that have reached out to us in the last two months to say, we're very focused on financial health, emergency savings, just a range of topics that maybe we would have had to reach out to them about before that have really allowed them or, or sort of raise the specter of we'd like to find a way to do something. So I just put that out there as well because it can feel, you could feel defe quickly defeated that there's like this is too much for any one actor. But when you look at what's happening in the fintech space, when you look at the pilots that um, uh, come lab, some of the things that you're running, when I look at some of the pilots we see with employers and even with some gig employers um, in partnership with fintechs, I think that this is a moment. These, these things tend to be uh, a build and they can take some time. And so starting now just means that as hopefully we start to move out of the pandemic, um, there will be increasing opportunities for individuals, employees, customers to find ways to start sort of building back up safety net. Um, we only have two minutes left. So Tim, I'm wondering if I should just stop the turn it over to you. Yeah, thank you, Deborah. I think there was a, a wonderful note to end on is we have a number of people from across different industries on the call, and I think that's a great way to say, look, there, it might seem daunting, but everyone has a role to play in, in building a more inclusive saving system. So I just want to say thank you, Deborah, for facilitating a fantastic conversation, David, David, and Wendy for joining us and for these really important insights. Um, and thank you to the audience for, for joining us today. I want to remind everyone that next week we'll be having a, a follow-up conversation on retirement savings. Um, that you can find at our website or um, at our, on, on Twitter uh, at Aspen FSP. So please sign up for that. And thank you all for joining us. And have a good week and stay safe, everyone.